You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and analyst for MLB.com. Joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is December 3rd. It is the day after non-tender day. We're going to explain what that is, go through some of the interesting repercussions from what happened yesterday. We're going to be joined by Twins beat writer, MLB.com Twins beat writer, Do Young Park, who's one of our favorites. He's going to explain a little bit to us about what the Twins are doing and uh, a player that they recently lost. We're going to talk about the Hall of Fame. We're going to talk about a very interesting pair of shortstop moves in Texas and in Anaheim and finish off as usual with our random free agents you should know about and a purpose pitch or two. Matt, isn't it weird that we start off with non-tender day as though that's like some kind of big holiday in baseball? I did get a kick out of five minutes before the deadline last night. The NBA had to come out with like this ridiculously massive move for John Wall. I think further illustrating the differences between the offseason in Major League Baseball uh, and the NBA, I guess, quickly, if anybody doesn't. It wasn't, by the way, it wasn't just John Wall. It was John Wall or Russell Westbrook. Uh, okay. It was, ba- it was basically like as if, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a MLB, ex- a, a good MLB. So, Soto for Acuna? It was as if like Trevor Story and Francisco Lindor got traded for each other. We should make that trade happen. Um, I was going <laughs> to, clearly I don't follow the NBA that much, but I did remember the name of one of the players. So kudos to me. Non-tender day. Let's talk about this very, very briefly. Um, for players who are arbitration eligible, so not the youngest guys with no service time and not the veterans with big contracts, arbitration guys are usually players with three or four or five years of service time who haven't yet reached free agency. Yesterday was the deadline to offer them, tender them, a, a contract offer. Uh, and if you don't, then you can non-tender them, making them free agents. Um, we expected sort of like, I don't know, a bloodbath, for lack of a better term. It didn't really happen. If you look at over the last couple of years, uh, you know, 30, 35, 40 players got non-tendered. Last year, it was 53. This year, it was 59. And what that's basically saying is those teams don't want to go to arbitration with those players because they don't think that those players will necessarily be worth what they might get in arbitration. There's a, there's a lot more backstory to that than we're going to go into here, but it's a little bit about the effects of the pandemic. It's a little bit about the arbitration process being a little bit archaic in that you can't really use advanced numbers and the arbiters are not baseball people. There's like a whole thing there. But basically what happened was, uh, you know, we had about the same number as last year, players who weren't tendered contracts. We had a lot more players who avoided arbitration by signing one-year deals, almost twice as many as last year, which goes into the numbers as well. Most interesting to me, Matt, before we get into the big individual names was this. Of the 59 guys who were non-tendered, 20 of them were right-handed relief pitchers, which I guess are just like the most populous, like fungible group of guys where you can kind of go through a list of a dozen of those. Yeah. And a couple, a couple points I want to make on that front, um, just, just, just to, a, to put a finer point on the arbitration thing um, is always the reminder that when you go to arbitration, basically the player says, I deserve this much based on my performance and my experience. The team says you deserve this much. And the arbiter has to decide one of the numbers. You can't, it's, you can't split the baby, so to speak. So there's some uncertainty there, and teams often want to avoid that uncertainty. Um, so there's been probably an increase in players getting non-tendered, also because sometimes, as Mike alluded to, 
players are sometimes getting rewarded for stats that perhaps teams don't value as much, like pitcher wins or um, RBIs. And yeah, you're right about really pitchers because I think you know, and we'll talk about this with Dill later when we talk about Matt. Is it Matt Whistler or it's Whistler, right? Is that our pronoun? Matt Whistler, yeah, yeah. When we talk about Matt Whistler, is that there's a a lot of teams who are confident in their ability to take uh, a right a relief pitcher and sort of like get the most out of him for a short period of time, whether that's one season or two seasons, whether with, via advanced metrics, a good pitching coach, um, uh, some scouting, a combination of those three factors. So a lot of teams are like, you know what, it's not worth paying a premium for a right-hand relief pitcher because I think I can just kind of like create one off the scrap heap, essentially. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's, there's a lot that goes into this, but I, I think my takeaway from yesterday was the number of players was you know about what I expected. And... There weren't that many surprises. I think people were worried for a minute that you might end up with like Gary Sanchez, uh, the, the Yankees choosing not to pay him. That didn't happen. Uh, people were worried maybe that the Cubs would choose not to pay Chris Bryant. Uh, that didn't happen. Some of the guys at the bottom end of the the quote unquote surprising list, like, you know, should the Orioles have hung on to Hunter Alberto? Probably because he doesn't make that much and he's like their fourth best player. You know, the, are the Royals better off without Michael Franco? I, I don't know. Maybe the names that surprised me are. Well, two of them, I guess we can say, well, we'll hold on to it for a minute because Eddie Rosario and Matt Whistler, we will talk about in greater depth when we are joined by Do Young Park in a second. The biggest name, I think, is Kyle Schwarber. That didn't actually surprise me at all um, for a lot of reasons. But the one that did surprise me was David Dahl, the Rockies non-tendered David Dahl. And I want to I want to read you a quote that Jeff Breidich said. And this is uh, this is word for word here. There, a, there are a good number of outfielders we have currently on the roster we hope to get playing time. Now, he did say we have a good number of outfielders. He didn't necessarily say we have a number of good outfielders. <laughs> I, I want to ask you a question. <laughs> Order of wording is very important. Here. Here's, here's a quick game we're going to play. I'm going to spot you, Charlie Blackman. Name Rockies outfielders. Who, who would be the starting outfielder for the Rockies this year? Charlie Blackman in right field. Fine. What else? Um... Uh, Tapia. Okay, Ryan Tapia. Yeah, Ryan Tapia. Who I'm not sure is very good in center field. I'll admit I'm looking at I'm looking at the page now, and I no, can see no the cheating. name. I would not have. I wouldn't. I would not have guessed this. I just pulled it up before you asked me. So, but I would have guessed Tapia. So I gave myself credit for that. The center fielder I would not have guessed. Uh, I don't know which one. Sam Hilliard. Is that what you're looking at? Sam Hilliard. Is what I was thinking. Of. Who I kind of like, and maybe Ian Desmond will come back, and maybe there's like Jonathan Daza. Anyway, it's not great. It's not great. The Rockies. Um, or I think when we did like the one to 30 war rankings at the beginning of the winter, they were 30th. And that was, you know, it's not like David Dahl had a great year because he didn't. He's always hurt. And he last year, 99 played appearances, he had 183, 222, 247. Like, fine. It's not like he lit up everything this year. But he has been, on the rare occasions where he's healthy, really good. And he, he know, made the all-star team in 2019, which did. I totally forgot about. He was the 10th overall pick in 2012. He is only, let's see, going to be 27 uh, in April. And he was only going to cost like $3 million. So I have lots of questions about the Rockies, but I think I have a larger question, which is, uh, did they not try to trade him? Or if so, did no one think it was that? That would be shocking to me that a team like, I don't know, Washington or Boston or Cleveland. Oh my God, Cleveland, Cleveland. Where's Cleveland on this? Like, like that some team desperate for outfielders wouldn't have gone after him. So th- did they not bother? I got, I don't know the answer to that, but here's what I'm excited about. Because if there's anything that is like a pet thing of mine, it's saying that you don't have to worry about Rockies hitters, Coors Field splits, because we've been talking about this a lot. Here's David Dahl's career OPS at home, 918 on the road, 722. 
guess what's going to happen when he lands somewhere else? I'm very excited for him to be like a 2022 Arizona Diamondback all-star or something, but then only ever play like 100 games in a season twice because he can never, ever stay healthy. That that was the one that stood out to me the most. Yeah, I mean, I think he instantly becomes, of the of the players who, who were non-tendered and became free agents um, yesterday, one of the things I want to clarify is there were 59 players non-tendered, but three of them immediately re-signed with their current team. So it was actually 56 new free agents, which actually brings it closer to the number essentially from last year, which basically means it's almost exactly the same as um, as last year where the number was 53. Um, you mentioned the Indians, and I think that like um, Dahl makes sense there. And Because one thing about the Indians is they also non-tendered, not surprisingly because their outfield has been terrible. They non-tendered Tyler Naquin. They non-tendered uh, Delano DeShields Jr. So they actually have a lot of roster spots to fill. And suddenly the market is kind of flooded with – Outfielders, especially left-handed hitting outfielders. Um, you already had um, Jack Peterson and Jackie Bradley Jr. on the free agent market. Now you've added Kyle Schwarber, depending on what you think of him as an outfielder. You've added David Dahl, and you've added Eddie Rosario. So there's kind of a lot to choose from. Choose from and for a team like the Indians, any of those guys would represent an upgrade, no matter what you think of them. Eddie and all of them. You also, um, even though I don't think he's very good, Nomar Mazzara is another another guy like that out there. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Schwarber was like the big name. That one didn't surprise me too much. You know what the other name that did surprise me a little bit. And I think this gets into what perceptions and, and reputations maybe you assign each of the teams, right? Like this isn't the guy I was going to say, but for example, the Dodgers traded for Corey Knebel from the Brewers last night. Now, if Knebel had gotten traded to, I don't know, the Mariners, the, the Marlins, like wh- whoever, some random team, you'd have been like, okay, you know, fine, whatever. But now he went to the Dodgers and everybody's like, oh, ooh, what do they what do they know about him? What do they like? And there's a couple of teams I sort of think about that way with. And one of those teams, it really has become the Reds, like at least on the pitching side over the last two years, because they've hired you know, Kyle Bodie and a whole bunch of the driveline guys, and they've seen Sonny Gray improve. And obviously Bauer had a great year there. And when they say that they're gonna let a guy go, I know it's it's also partially a business thing. It comes from above, you know, the analysts, and that's fine. But they had traded for Archie Bradley in the middle of the year. He's the seventh overall pick in 2011. And they traded, you know, not like high-level prospects, but some guys for him. And he only got into six games in the regular season, and I think pitched once in the playoffs too. And in those six games, uh struck out 18 and he walked three. And this is a guy who's had success before. So he's someone I was a little surprised with. And I think, you know, is maybe the second best reliever available now, if you like hand better. Is there anybody like you like better than Bradley now that May is gone, aside from Hendricks? Um, probably not. I'm glad you mentioned Hendricks, of course. Uh, but um, that's, I mean, it kind of goes back to the original point about right-hand relief pitchers, right? They're just like, there's just so many of them. And you really have, I mean, Bradley's had a pretty uneven career. Um, now you, I mean, you could argue like, well, he's, he has more of a track record or equal track record of, of, of Trevor May, um, who we'll talk about more with, with, with Doe, but of course Trevor May has kind of been on a very trajectory and has been consistently good for the last couple of years while Bradley's kind of been, um, all over the place, but yeah, you could certainly make a case for Bradley. And I think there will be, um, some competition for, for his, uh, services. The one that I wouldn't say surprised me, but that stands out to me. And I'll say this because I've just always been a believer is Carlos Rodon, who was like a, who was non-tendered by the White Sox? He's never lived up to his promise. I think I'll admit that I think some of my excitement about him goes back to like going into his junior year of college. He had this hype, this almost like Strasburg, Steven Strasburg level hype of like, okay, this is like the next great 
you know, college pitching prospect who's going to be, you know, the, the the number one pick and he's going to be in the majors within months and he's going to be dominant. And his junior year, he just like wasn't quite as good. I think he got hurt and his strikeout numbers were down and he went to, he was a, he pitched at North Carolina state and he, you know, he fell quote unquote fell all the way to number three at the draft um, when he seemed like a lock to go number one, six months earlier. And he's, shown flashes from time to time and his secondary numbers have always been a little better than his actual numbers, but he's never been good. So it's hard to be excited about him, but I'm curious to see if some teams who, you know, like still had great scouting reports on him, who maybe have um, a similar scouting and player development staff that they had when he was drafted, which wasn't even all that long ago, um, might believe that there's still something there that they can, they can get out of him either as maybe as maybe even as a reliever. Oh, out. I'm super out, super out. Uh, (laughs) And totally, totally, Totally reasonably so. As I said, like, you know, we, we have people, players we get irrationally attached to, and I've always been irrationally attached to uh, Rodon, and I'm not even, I'm not even trying to defend, I'm not even trying to, I'm trying to defend my my allegiance to him. It's more just like, I find him interesting as much as anything else. I didn't realize this till right this second, but when you mentioned that Rodon had been the number three overall pick, I didn't realize it was the same year that Schwarber was the number four overall pick. That <laughs> was in 2014. That That is a cursed draft. The, the top of that draft, Brady Aiken, number one. So like an infamous with the Astros and he got hurt and I don't think he's ever going to pitch Tyler Kolek to the Marlins with, if you don't remember that name, I think that answers that question. Rodana Schwarber, uh, Nick Gordon for the twins, like Alex Jackson. Then you get like Nola Freeland Conforto was 10. That's fine. But man, there are some stories in that, that top 10 there. I kind of want to go and see how many years there have been where the top neither one of the top two picks made it to the, to the majors <laughs> that's got to be um, pretty un, unheralded you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that you know at the time that was kind of right at the peak of like when you know Theo Epstein um and the Cubs were sort of seen as like the the, the, the smartest the, the smartest front office out there and Kyle Schwarber was seen as like an overdraft at the time like a lot of people had him like you know 15 to 25 on their draft boards and the Cubs took him number four and it was like, well, obviously the Cubs might must know something that everyone else doesn't know, you know. And that was like they got, you know, they had the benefit of the doubt. And you know, compared to your typical number four overall pick, I guess you could say that Kyle Schwarber has, you know, been good or you know, like fine. You know, he hasn't been like a dis- necessarily disappointment. And you know, in his last full healthy season, 2019, it is worth noting that he hit 38 home runs and had an 871 OPS. So he's not like a scrub. That said. According to baseball reference, his career war is 5.1, his entire career. So he's basically just a guy, but he has all this hype on him because he was like this big traffic by the Cubs. He did have that, you know, sort of heroic World Series where he came back and played after not having played all season, which was amazing, to be clear. But since then, he's just been okay. And he'll get a lot of hype. It wouldn't shock me if he went to a team like the Yankees, got to DH and hit 40 home runs. But... um there's the, the fame outweighs the uh, the value, I think. I will say uh, very quickly on Schwarber. First, I think Jock Peterson is a better version of him because they're similar-ish hitters, but Peterson's a much better defender. And if you go back in time to November 20-something of 2016, I wrote on our website that the Cubs should have traded Schwarber at the peak of his fame for starting pitching. You can imagine how Cubs fans reacted to that. It was not favorably. I would like to know what they would think about that idea now. We're going to take a quick break. We are going to be joined by MLB.com's Do Young Park to talk about some twins.
talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually, we just brush it off or blame ourselves, saying things like, I lost my mojo. Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com MLB. GetRoman.com MLB. And we're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, and we are joined by a good friend of ours, MLB.com's Doe Young Park, who is our Minnesota Twins beat writer. And uh, Doe, first of all, thank you for joining us. We, um, I don't know, I feel like most people, when they think about the Twins and the non-tenders and everything, are focusing on on Eddie Rosario. But for me, I don't know if enough people noticed how good Matt Whistler was last year, and in kind of a weird way. Didn't he throw like 85% sliders and after a year in which he'd kind of like bounced around from Cincinnati to San Diego and then Seattle and then Minnesota, um, you know, only 18 games. And from my impression, it seems like this is a guy you'd probably want to keep around because they sort of quote unquote fixed him. Like, is that an incorrect assumption here? No, not at all. It's funny you mentioned that. I mean, even even Twins fans and Matt Whistler himself uh, didn't expect him to have the season he did. He was a waiver wire pickup off the Mariners. He kind of bounced around. I think he first came through in the Braves organization as a starter. That didn't happen. And he's just kind of bounced around trying to figure it out. And when the Twins brought him off waivers from the Mariners, they actually gave him a guaranteed major league contract. I think something just north of 700000 And I was talking to him in spring training uh, back when that was still a thing, back when we could still go into clubhouses and they were still playing like games with fans. Imagine <laughs> that. And I went in and I was just talking to him and I was like, you know, you know, man, like guaranteed major league deal. That's pretty cool. And he's like, yeah, it actually kind of caught me off guard a bit. And uh, the twins had their plan. And I mean, I think we've come to learn this last year too that Wes Johnson and the pitching minds, they're really, really like sliders. And Matt Whistler has a really, really good one to the point where, well, Wes Johnson, the pitching coach, isn't giving us his secrets, but he also tells us, you know, there is something maybe about the late movement, about the lack of consistency of Whistler's slider that allows him to throw it over and over and over again while only throwing a handful of other pitches to mix in. And uh, he can really have success with it. And he really did. And that's why it really caught us off guard as an entire beat uh, when Matt Whistler was non-tendered yesterday by the Twins, where non-tendering Eddie Rosario in your conversations with team people with each other in the media, you know, that was that was not a surprise at all. That had been pretty much the widespread expectation since the Twins finished off their season. Uh, but for Whistler, when they announced Whistler, he hadn't come up in the talks that we'd had at all. And I think I literally dropped the pencil I was holding and just yelled into the void of my apartment, Whistler? And that kind of was... <laughs> in our group too. Uh, I mean, 107 ERA, 35 strikeouts in 25 innings. He opened a bunch of games. He closed a game. He was... 
a guy that, like you said, they probably wanted to keep around. Um, but it was just one of those situations where this was a very, very odd year um, for a lot of reasons. And the Twins were hoping to avoid arbitration. And that's something that they probably weren't going to be able to do, which we can probably get into a little bit more. But I think I'm getting the sense that played into the decision a bit. Yeah, I mean, 91st percentile in hard hit rate, where, you know, 100th is the best you can do. So he was very, very good at that. And 92nd percentile in whiff rate. I'm glad you mentioned that 107 ERA, because that is just super duper shiny. And I think we know enough now not to, you know, look at a reliever's ERA in 18 Mm -hmm. games. So if you look at more advanced things like, uh, you know, FIP, like fielding independent pitching, it was a 335. Uh, StatCast has an expected ERA, which is 274. I mean, they're still really good, right? But in the world of arbitration, which, you know, the only stats you can use are the ones that basically were invented in 1964. (laughs) Do you think they were worried, you know, that the the non-baseball arbiter people would look at that 107 and think that he is like the best reliever in baseball? Yeah, I I, I do think so. And that's something that Derek Falvey spoke indirectly to. Uh, the Twins president of baseball operations only spoke to him after the decision yesterday. He was saying the Twins went into this offseason, and I suspect this is a thing around the league too, with the goal of not even coming close to the arbitration process. And like you said, it's because arbitration is uh, arbitrary, I don't know is the right word, wonky maybe, old school, whatever it is, because you got the independent, uh, you got the independent base arbitrator that often, you know, doesn't have as much baseball experience or baseball savvy and each side is going to make their case. And with Matt Whistler, you have the shiny number of the 107 ERA and the 35 strikeouts, which is why I brought those up earlier. Um, because especially with the 2020 season, 60 games, one of the things that Falvey mentioned is, you know, listen, some it's, it's, it's so hard to A, project off of that, and B, to find comps off of that, um, which is what generally you use as benchmarks to determine a player's salary for the coming season. And so, like you said, when some guys, you know, played under their played under what, you know, they've been projected to play. Other guys can have a really hot 60 games and just, like you said, look like the best reliever in the world, which is what Matt Whistler did. I mean, you look at the underlying stats, you mentioned, you know, you, you mentioned like the expected ERA, expected batting average, expected slugging percentage, barrel rate, strikeout rates. You no, know, those were all elite. He's a star, he's a stat cast darling, too. At the same time, is he is he a 107 really is he a 107 ERA pitcher that's going to continue to get like 12 strikeouts for nine innings probably not but he's if he were to go to arbitration and they just couldn't come to an agreement with his agent to come to terms with the deal before that they, he's probably going to make out like a bandit there and the thing is even if he made like under a million dollars this uh in 2020 he's probably due for a pretty hefty raise there and the fact of the matter is the twins have a lot of spots to fill in their bullpen. They still need somebody to replace Marwin Gonzalez. They need somebody to fill in the shortstop spot, the the backup shortstop spot behind Jorge Polanco because they don't have that anymore. They probably need another starting pitcher. And so, so, you know, a lot of teams are stretched thin. And the idea of paying, I think, as much as a guy like Matt Whistler with his 107 super shiny ERA might, might, might make in arbitration, I think... Um, was something where they want to keep him around and he's a good reliever but he's probably not that good of a reliever as to uh what the 107 era might get him in arbitration and that's the sense i'm getting at least now bill you mentioned um eddie rosario before and how you were less surprised that he was non-tendered um he's the kind of guy obviously you know maybe in a previous generation in baseball he would have seen more as like a superstar you know in 2019 he hit 32 home runs and drove in 109 runs he is a good player um 
why were you not surprised the Twins then non-tendered him? And is there a chance that they bring him back, um, which I've heard might be a possibility? Yeah, I mean, there's a handful of different there's a handful of different reasons there. First and foremost, he's got the it's the same thing with arbitration for him. Really, he's always had the shiny home run and RBI numbers, and that's given him uh, just by factor of being a you know he's got pop and he hits in the middle of what was a good Twins lineup last season. I mean, it was an okay Twins lineup before that. Uh, but he's always had those uh, traditional counting stats by virtue of hitting cleanup, hitting fifth, hitting sixth in this lineup. Um, and so he's uh, his salaries continue to balloon in arbitration to the point where he was getting paid $7.75 million last year, probably do 9 or 10 this coming year because uh, he still hit 13 homers, had 42 RBIs for what that's worth in the abbreviated season last year. At the same time, the other thing is he is a career uh, he's a career 105 WRC plus hitter. Doesn't hit the ball all too hard. Is a free swinger. You know, a lot of those uh, hard hit me- metrics, the exit velocity metrics, not so good on those. And that's the gist of Eddie Rosario's problem is that he is a free swinger. Never, I don't think the word walk was in his vocabulary until 2020. 317 career on base percentage. Um, and the fact of the matter is, he came into spring training last year saying, I'm going to take more walks, because he knew that he needed to get that OPS, get that on-base percentage up, if he wanted to uh, get a bigger deal in free agency in the modern game. And uh, even with trying, even with ballooning his walk rate up to 8.2%, which is by far a career high for him, still only a 316 on-base percentage. And so the there's that, and the Twins, pro, and, the twins and I don't think any team, wanting to pay you know close to $10 million for that kind of production, even with the solid, consistent power. Other part of it is he's a corner outfielder. You look at the Twins' top prospect, you got nothing but corner outfielders. Alex Kirilov showed up. Uh, he's the number two prospect in the system. He played in the wild card series against Houston. You got Trevor Larnick, who's also right behind him, probably going to start the season in AAA. He's uh, the number three prospect. Brent Rooker, big power bat, showed up uh, for seven games before he broke his arm last year and hit well. And he's their number uh, 12 prospect. They, they're just swimming in nothing but corner outfielders right now. So unless Rosario is planning to take a huge pay cut, which I don't, I don't really think he ever was, um, it, it, just, it was just a deal that made all too much sense. And I think, uh, you know, they're, they're going to continue to have conversations. But at the same time, it's, it's going to be a short-term thing. It's going to be something where even if Rosario does come back, He's going to be looking over his shoulder at the Uber prospect Kirilov, at the Uber prospect Larnik, at Rooker, who's also there ready. And I'm not sure it's going to be the best environment for team or player. I mean, obviously, with the Twins hoping to compete, more competition and uh, more options is good. But at a certain point, I think, you know, you kind of see the writing on the wall. Joe, I do want to ask you about a guy who uh, is no longer going to be a twin, and that is Trevor May, hmm. who. Signed a two-year deal with the Mets, and I think it, it surprised some people. Like I, I looked at him as the second best reliever on the market behind, behind Liam Hendricks. Um, yeah. I like him better than Brad Hen. And I think people look at his career stats, and he's got like a 450 ERA and seven saves, and they're kind of confused without really noticing like he since he came back from Tommy John a couple years ago, he's gotten a lot better. Like the slider has gotten better, the fastball has gotten better. And, mm-hmm. you know, as we've been taping this, he's been kind of giving this like not necessarily a press conference, but like an introductory sort of Zoom thing from oh, yeah. his home. 
And, um, it, you know, I don't know him, but just from like the way he's, he's, the tweets about him are coming up. It seems like Mets fans are going to love this guy. I'm going to give you one example. He said that he ate a sandwich in Queens yesterday that was so good. It compelled him to think this is where I meant to be. And as you can imagine, Twitter immediately needs to know what is that sandwich? And it seems like they found out already. I was hoping it was going to be the bomb from South Chris and Charlie's in Astoria. It's not. It is actually from Benetary's in College Point. And I'm going to sidetrack us for a quick second here. Matt, I've lived in New York for like 14 years. I've never been to College Point. It's like you have to go all the way out to City Field, which is way east of Manhattan, and then north almost all the way up to uh, the bridge to the Bronx. Have you ever been to College Point? Have you spent time there? Um, no, and I've lived in New York basically my entire life. Right. Exactly right. So now that I've completely sidetracked this, I'm a big fan of anybody who likes uh, cats and live streaming and sandwiches, uh, because that basically makes me a major league ball player. But as far as Trevor May goes, will Mets fans kind of, you know, like him as much as he's sort of making it out to be here? He is a he is truly a man of the people, isn't he? He's got a kitten. He likes to eat bomb sandwiches. He likes to play video games. I mean, he's got it all. Uh, I think he's really going to enjoy the uh, the atmosphere in New York, too. He really feeds off of that kind of energy. And I remember him always telling me when we would go to New York, um, with the twins that you know he really likes the fan dynamic he really likes how they feed off of the fans there how the the atmosphere I think it's a good match also because Jeremy Hefner is there as the Mets pitching coach and uh, that's the thing about Trevor May he's a really really smart guy and coming off of that Tommy John surgery he had a couple years ago that was in the midst of his uh, transition from starter to reliever as well he's really one of those guys that's embraced a lot of the new thinking that the Twins have brought into the fold. Whether that is they have uh, they they have a biomechanics specialist, the Twins do, uh, Martin Verhoeven. And he and Wes Johnson have been working a lot on, you know, optimizing pitchers' deliveries um, from, bio, from a biomechanical standpoint. He really bought into that to the point where he uh, he raised his average fastball velocity and now he's able to he's able to touch uh, 99. Um, whereas as a starter, I think he was a guy sitting mostly like 93, 94 now. As a as a reliever, especially last season, I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but he was sitting he was sitting ninety seven to nine to ninety eight in a lot of those outings, and uh, that's something where they just worked out a couple of the he's in it. I don't want to get into too much detail, but like to bore you guys, but he said that his like hips were very inflexible, and so that's something that he worked with uh, strength and conditioning coach Ian Kadish on a lot in the Twins organization. And he's worked a lot on the slider with Wes Johnson because we've talked about before. The Twins love them some sliders. And all that has, has come together to a guy with an elite fastball because he can throw it harder with the biomechanical advance, advancements. He pairs it a lot better with that slider. And uh, the curveball's still a work in progress, but he's got that starter's arsenal, which is something that's rare in a late-innings type reliever with that elite fastball um, that he can really blow hitters away with. And, uh, you know, when the fastball gets hit, it gets hit. But he also had 46.9% whiff on it last year. And that's something that's been steadily climbing as well. And, uh, yeah, you look at the career track record, it's, track record, it's not there. But I think there's a good reason you had him as a second-best reliever in your market. And I think the baseball consensus was there, too. That's why he's earning, like, $7, 8000000 million a year to go play in Queens. Um, and I think he's a guy where he's been on this upward trajectory, and I don't know that he's plateaued yet. I mean, I've heard that, you know, there's still some biomechanical refinement there to go. And he's still been working on those secondaries, like I said. And so he's a guy still at age uh, still at age 31, where I think he's got good stuff in his arm for the life of that deal, for sure. Now, Doe, before we let you go, one last question, which is the Twins won the division last year for the second straight year. Um, 
but of course, you know, May's gone. Odorizzi's a free agent. Um, I'm not sure which other free agents off the top of my head. I can't remember, but like, there's some uncertainty there. What do you see? Like, what do you see the, the twins doing? Is there any free agents um, you expect them to target or try and bring in, or maybe some guys they expect to bring back? So I would, I would think that Tyler Clippard would be a pretty significant priority. So especially given how this uh, last month has gone for the Twins, they do lose a lot in the starting rotation. Their, uh, their starting rotation losses, they lost Oda Rizzi, they lost Rich Hill, and they lost uh, Homer Bailey, who was pretty much a non-factor in 2019 anyways. But uh, there, there are spots to fill there. Uh, they have internal arms that they really like there. Jordan Balazovic and Johan Duran are probably going to be up at some point. They're the numbers four and five prospects in the organization. So they're probably going to rely on them to a certain extent. But the bullpen is, I think, the biggest, the big, the most glaring area right now. Because there, they declined Sergio Romo's club option. Uh, they had, like I said, they're losing Tyler Clippard, who was one of their best relievers. They've already lost Trevor May to the Mets. Um, and now with Whistler, who was again one of the be- one of the better statistical relievers in that bullpen, gone. That's four of their better relievers, their better late inning flexible guys um, that are no longer part of the organization at this moment. And that's not to mention the fact that Taylor Rogers, despite all world underlying metrics for the third consecutive year, uh, just turned into a hit machine last year. I think in that. For reasons that you know nobody could really explain um because the strikeout rates were there the walk rates were there the quality of the pitches were there he was just getting hit you know and they are just thinking it's one of those years but i think the bullpen is really one of those areas and clippard was just a good fit in the clubhouse and uh he's one of those guys that the twins like he gives you a different look with his uh kind of change up first uh change up first arsenal right and he's not a guy that relies on the fastball as much and the twins really like those alternate looks whether it's him or whether it's uh, whether it's um, Whistler with all of his sliders, or you know those uh, non-traditional things that you know the Rays obviously do better than anybody else, but the Twins are also trying to do their version of that, so to speak. Um, they've already brought in two you know waiver wire guys, Ian Jabot and uh, Brandon Waddell, and I think Twins fans are kind of looking whenever anytime some of that happens, is he the next Matt Whistler? Because the Twins have had such a good track record of success of getting those guys that other teams haven't been able to optimize as much, um, but they find something new. Um, Whistler was like that. Kenta Maeda, to a certain extent, was like that, where they got him to throw a slider and uh, change up a lot more. Um, And he turned into a Cy Young contender um, from what he was on the Dodgers. And so I don't know how splashy the Twins are going to be, honestly. This is kind of my roundabout way of getting that. I think there are splashes to be made. I think there's probably a starting pitcher and a reliever. Um, but beyond that, they're still, they're still in conversations with Nelson Cruz. They've got to figure out what they're going to do with him. They've also got to come back with a utility player to replace the production of Marwin Gonzalez and A. Ray Adrianza, who have both left. And there's not that, not a ton of money to do this, especially if they bring a Cruz back, especially because of the Donaldson deal from last season, which is going to be a money sucker for the next few years. So with all that in mind, I think it's going to be a combination of you probably get once a starter and a reliever. And then beyond that, you gotta you gotta figure out how you're gonna round out that bullpen depth, and that's and I my I would suspect that'd be through those kind of Matt Whistler type you know under the radar we can get the, make this guy better cheaper deals, and I think wrapping back wrapping this back full circle, their non tendering of Whistler a relief a reliever who might have made you know two three million dollars and had good production last year, their unwillingness to bring him back kind of indicates that to me as well that they're kind of gonna be looking for some more of those uh, value deals. Um, 
that they can improve like they did with Whistler last year too. So a final quick question before we let you go. About three days ago, Twins manager Rocco Baldelli followed me on Twitter. Is that to be viewed as a good thing or a bad thing? Rocco, you, you, you'd like Rocco's Twitter. I think I actually texted him yesterday after he tweeted about wanting to bring Bill Walton to the Twin Cities for a ball game. And, uh, I, you know, I was just like, you know, Rocco, if, you, if I don't just stumble into your clubhouse next year, assuming that's a thing, and see, uh, and see Bill Walton in there, I'm going to be really disappointed. I mean, he's a guy that... Uh, he he like he, he got a new place in Rhode Island. Uh, he really he's he's been doing a lot of hiking. He uh, likes his music. Big fish fan likes his coffee. You know, I think uh, I think there's a lot to you're, you're talking about. You like Trevor May for his sandwiches and his cat. I think there's a lot of everyman vibe there in Rocco too that you'll enjoy off of his Twitter. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Uh, Do Young Park, thank you for educating us with some twins facts. Matt and I will be right back with some more on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you, based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Our thanks to Do Young Park. Matt and I are going to get to our three batter minimum, where we touch on three notable topics from the current times in baseball. One of the things we're going to talk about, and probably more so as uh, the weeks go on and this gets a little closer, Hall of Fame inductions are going to be announced in a couple of weeks. We've seen all the voters get their ballots, and some of them have already made those ballots public. And this was actually an idea uh, that Matt had that I wanted to dig into a little bit, which was, are we inducting enough players, and especially pitchers, uh, into the Hall of Fame? If you compare just the percent of players who were playing uh, you know, in decades ago who made it to the Hall of Fame as compared to now, we're really missing out. And um, the way I looked at this was sort of updating an old study that Dave Cameron had done at Fangraphs back in 2013, which was to look at the percent of players by birth year, uh, by decade, who made it into the Hall of Fame. So you could look at it, it and say the the top 1.5% of all players have made the Hall of Fame. Uh, and maybe that sounds right. I also tried to look at it, you know, not just in terms of all players, but of all like regular-ish players, because we just have more players overall now. So what I did was I looked for guys who had a career of at least 1,000 plate appearances or at least 500 innings pitched, and that's about 4%. But if you look at it on a decade-by-decade basis, it is down. It is obviously some of it is guys aren't eligible yet, whatever. Um, But we are down to like World War II levels of players in the Hall of Fame over the last like 30 years. And what I mean by that is during the war, a lot of the greatest players like Ted Williams, like Stan Usual, were just not playing. So we had a talent drain. We don't have a talent drain now. 
Uh, we just, we haven't been inducting enough people. So Matt, how much of that is because, and there's so many reasons, the the maximum of putting 10 names on the ballot, which is insane, uh, the PED issue, certainly the changing electorate. Where does this start? It's a really good question. Um, I don't, I don't, I mean, I think the, the 10 player, the 10 player uh, max on the ballot is a factor, but not, not a huge factor. I think for, I think the PD thing is a factor and fairly, I will also say, and someone, someone mentioned this, I know someone mentioned this on, on Twitter, uh, a reader who read your piece mentioned this on Twitter is like the idea that there was a period where the veterans committee was extremely aggressive in inducting players into the hall of fame, where basically they were inducting all their old friends basically, and kind of lowered the bar of the hall of fame in general. And that maybe we shouldn't, you know, be, um, be trying to, to, to reach that low bar. Maybe we are better off kind of raising the bar. And if that means that more players from the early part of the 20th century are in the hall of fame than should be, so be it, we shouldn't just always have a low standard, which I think is a fair point, but I don't think it answers the, the question about starting pitchers because I think, what would you say? There's only been two player, two pitchers since born since 1970, two pitchers, into the hall yeah, two pitchers who have been born in the last 50 years have been inducted. One of them is Pedro Martinez, who may very well be the greatest pitcher of all time. And the other one is Roy Halladay. Now, obviously to say something in the last 50 years, some of that is, well, those, not all those guys are eligible yet, right? Like Clayton Kershaw is getting in the Hall of Fame. There's no doubt about that, but we're not quite to that point yet. What we're missing are the guys who were born in like the, you know, the sixties and seventies and like maybe Kurt Schilling will get in, you know, maybe he won't. Uh, maybe CC Sabathia will get in, but I, I think we're going to end up missing uh, unless you're like this truly great, no doubt about it, like a Pedro Martinez type, because pitchers just don't get to 300 wins anymore. You know, they don't they don't rack up those kind of counting stats. I think we're going to end up seeing this weird dip where like the guys who are at the end of their career now, not that Kirsch is at the end of his career, but he's certainly you know been pitching for a long time, like him, uh, Verlander, Scherzer. I think Granke's got a good chance. Those guys are going to get in, but we're going to go back and look and like, man, we really should have had Johan Santana in the Hall of Fame, shouldn't we? Man, I wish we hadn't given that 2005 Cy Young, which would have been his third, to somebody else because I think that's the gap we're going to have. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely that kind of group of pitchers. And I think once you kind of take a step back, I do hope that Hall of Fame voter – I mean, it's, it's, it's too late for Santana on the BBWA ballot because he fell off with less than 5% after, after um, his one year on the ballot, which is really a shame because, you know – um, in terms of career career war, he's basically identical to Sandy Koufax and Whitey Ford. <laughs> this is what's kind of crazy that he literally fell off the year. I think he definitely was a victim of the um, the he him specifically was a victim of the um, the uh, the ten the ten man limit. The year he was on the ballot, I think there were eight guys that got at least fifty percent of the vote um, because there was still that backlog of a lot of these players from the from the um, from the so called PED era that were kind of trying to get them like. Get you know they were kind of waiting their line to get in, so there was still that the Jeff Bagwell, Mike Piazza um, backlog, so to speak. Um, that that kind of pitcher is the one that's really going to kind of miss out. And I think we've, we're seeing a couple of pitchers, you know, on the ballot this year who I think kind of fall into that category. There's three really that stand out to me: um, Andy Pettit, uh, Tim Hudson, and even Mark Burley. And on the face, I can't even say like, oh. I think these guys are Hall of Famers. But if you say like, okay, let's assume that maybe, you know, the top, you know, one, I think, you know, you kind of wrote about this in your piece, like the top one and a half percent of players are in the Hall of Fame. So like at any given moment, the top, you know, one and a half percent of players, you should be considered like there should be like, you know, 
that many Hall of Famers playing at any given moment. Well, you know, in their generation, those guys were in the top 2% of pitchers for like over a, you know, 15-year period or, or, or 10-year period or whatever the, you know, the sort of the bulk of their career was. And then especially with a guy like um, Andy Pettit, when you factor in postseason performance, it's kind of like, well, he probably, you know, based on kind of the math, so to speak, he probably should be a Hall of Famer. If we're saying we want the top 1% of players in, well, then maybe he should be in. Maybe. Uh, he also has obviously some off-field issues with the uh, you know, HGH and everything. But yeah, I, I don't know how this is going to shake out. My guess is this year we're going to maybe see one guy get in, right? I think, you know, Schilling has obviously torched his own candidacy in a lot of ways, but he came so close last year. My guess is he will actually just barely sneak over. I don't think Vizquel deserves to be in. I don't think he's going to get in. I think it's probably too late for Bonds and Clemens. And then, you know, I don't think, I haven't looked ahead that far. I don't think there's any like no doubt slam dunk candidate in the next year or two after that. So I guess it's good that we actually did induct 13 players in the last four years. All right, here's our next one. Item number two, the Rangers have a new shortstop and that shortstop was their third baseman last year and their backup catcher the year before. Imagine going back to 2018 and telling someone Elvis Andrus would lose a shortstop job to the backup catcher. <laughs> Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, who uh, had been playing third base very, very well, I might add. The metrics really loved him. He's going to be the Rangers shortstop next year. Now, he did play shortstop uh, already. And so there's a lot to unpack here. First, there's just like, hey, a catcher moving to shortstop. That's kind of cool. Also, Elvis Andrus has been the Rangers starting opening day shortstop every year dating back to... 2009 and i'm looking at this right now if you also factor in the fact that it, let's see starting 2008 for the previous i think seven or eight years uh hank blaylock had been the opening day third baseman so if you want to go back to the last time the rangers had an opening day lineup without Anders in it assuming he's not next year or hank blaylock we are talking about april 1st 2001 a game where randy velardi was playing second base rafael palmero was playing first base alex rodriguez was the shortstop and he was playing against the uh, Toronto Blue Jays, who had like peak Blue Jays names. Brad Fulmer was there. Tony Batista, Raul Mondesi, Carlos Delgado. It's been a minute. Anyway, um, first things first. Let's talk about Kiner Falefa. Were you were you stunned by this? Because he really played a great third base last year. I'll admit, I, I was I was sort of surprised, but I'll, I mean, at the same time, I, the, the the Rangers were kind of a non factor, and it was a sixty game season. I didn't really pay a ton of attention to them. So relative to some other teams, so just like it kind of was like I saw that and I was like, oh, and my first reaction was shock. And I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. Like, you know, what's going to happen with Andrus? Is they ever wanted to trade Andrus? Could they could this even like hurt his value? Um, but then I kind of came around on it. I was like, you know what? This actually in some ways um, makes sense. And in fact, might actually potentially enhance any potential trade value that Elvis Andrus has. If you can market him as like a, a multi-positional threat, who's like a great clubhouse guy and well-liked with a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of like good uh, winning veteran experience. And I think, I think it's cool that a team is, is sort of tr- to see a team try it, right? It's, it's, a, it's definitely a little bit out, out of the box. This isn't a piece that uh, Andrew Simon wrote uh, this week about the switch. Um, he kind of could become the first modern player to log at least 50 career games at catcher, shortstop and third base, which is pretty cool. Yeah, there's only been two guys in really modern baseball history to get at least 70 games at catcher and also at shortstop. And they're super interesting. One is Mo Berg, where if you don't know Mo Berg's story, I really I implore you to look it up. Um, just Google the catcher was a spy. And that'll tell you everything about it. Um, and then Bobby Bregan, who 
was a teammate of Jackie Robinson and then was like, a, I think, co a manager of the Milwaukee Brewers and was an executive uh, for a number of years. He's really interesting. Um, I saw that, you know, you mentioned the Rangers and I agree with you, like they're kind of in trouble. Andrus has not been very good the last couple of years of door. Hasn't been very good this the last couple of years. I had a trivia question for you and I, I borrowed it from somewhere and I'm honestly blanking on where I saw it. It was on Twitter or in a, a chat or something, but I want to put this one to you because of the nature of the postseason we just had. So the Dodgers spent most of their time in Texas's new ballpark, right? They won 11 games there on their way to winning the World Series. At what point in history will the Rangers hold the record for most postseason games won in their own park? How far in the future are we going? <laughs> it's not really a trivia question. It's more just like a... Well, it's a, sure. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Uh, 11 so my games. Daughter's in first, my, daughter's, my, my older daughter's in first grade, so maybe when... <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a minute. Uh, maybe, when she's, maybe when she's in college. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, I laugh because it's funny, but yeah, it's it's going to be a minute. All right. The third thing is also about a shortstop. The, uh, one of the moves made yesterday was that the Orioles traded Jose Iglesias to the Angels for a couple of minor leaguers. It seems clear that Iglesias will be the new shortstop in Anaheim and Jolton Simmons is unlikely to return. That seemed like a possible you know landing spot for maybe like Titi Gregorius or Marcus Simeon. And so now there is you know one, one fewer potential team looking for a shortstop. Um, it's interesting, too, because I guess this moves David Fletcher over to second base, but also Iglesias happened to be at the very top of a list of something I wrote the other day. I just looked at the guys who had the biggest offensive improvements from 2019 to 2020 to try to see like if they're real or not. You know, Freddie Freeman was already great and he was monstrously great, right? Is that real? You know, maybe, but nobody improved more than Jose Iglesias did. So, in nearly 3,000 plate appearances in his career entering the season, he's like the stereotypical, you know, light hitting, smooth fielding shortstop, right? He hit, hit 273, 315, 371. This year, 373 batting average, 400 on base, 556 slugging, shortened version of a shortened season because he got hurt and he only played in 39 games. I'm pretty confident in saying that's a fluke, although his hard hit rate did go up, so that's fine. But is this is this the player the Angels needed? Like, is this the shortstop they should have had when they are obviously trying to win now? Like, is this the piece that helps Mike Trout get to October? Yeah, I thought it was. I kind of thought it was a strange move, especially with like three pretty good um, shortstops on the free agent market. Although, of course, one of them is Andrelton Simmons, who they've had and probably don't want back. So, I guess in their case, um, it's probably two um, because you know then it's just Marcus Simeon or, or Didi Gregorius. I don't really. Get it? I think it's. Um, I'm with you. I think it just feels kind of fluky, and isn't going to really move the needle for the um, for the uh, Angels. It didn't cost them anything great. There was like a you know like a couple of like lower like lower tier prospects, but it just seemed like a strange move to me. I think the, the big winner here is is probably the Reds because they're kind of the the contender with the biggest need at shortstop now, um, and it just like makes it that much more likely that they could kind of get one of those three guys I mentioned, Semyon, Gregorius, or Simmons on on terms they feel they feel good about. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I think the Angels clearly, I mean, they have a new general manager. Uh, they clearly have a lot to, they clearly have a lot to do. And that, as for the Orioles, I'm a little torn here because it's like Iglesias was good, but he's not that good. And they need competent major leaguers for next season, which now they have one fewer of. So it's, I don't know, these guys, the minor leaguers I got are very far away. But then also Jose Iglesias is like, what, the 18th best shortstop in Major League Baseball? So 
I think you can go uh, both ways on it. All right, we are going to go to our next sub, uh, next subject here. So we have been trying uh, for our off-season shows to each pick a random free agent that you should know more about. And I thought to myself, well, we just had a whole bunch of non-tenders. So suddenly I've got like 59 new guys to look at. Hooray for me. I'm going to go with the man who actually got a National League MVP vote. It's true. Former Cubs reliever Ryan Tapera did get a 10th place MVP vote totally by accident by a voter who had meant to select Trey Turner and totally screwed up the Google form. Um, to his credit, and I, I can't remember the voter's name, he owned up to it right away and apologized. I think it, I think it was I think it was Rick Hummel. There you I go. I don't mean to call him out, but I thought it was cool because he apologized and sort of was like, "Oops, my bad." Yeah. He just owned it, which was great. absolutely. And it didn't. It didn't, and it did not affect. It was. It was like the, you know a ninth place vote or something, so it did not affect um, anything. No, absolutely. Uh, but it was, it was a funny story. Anyway, he's a free agent now. The Cubs non-tendered him, and as I said earlier, there are just a slew of right-handed relief pitchers. And, you know, if you're getting non-tendered and if you're in your 30s, you shouldn't put too much on their long-term rate of success, and that's fine. And yet, I found something more interesting about him than the fact that he actually just got an NL MVP vote. So he had spent five years with Toronto. He's like, fine, you know, middle reliever, no big deal. Went to the Cubs last year. All of a sudden, he upped his strikeout rate from 16% to 35%. He struck out 31 hitters in 20 and two-thirds innings. There were 628 pitchers over the last two years who threw at least 20 innings in both seasons. And his increase in strikeout rate of 19%, up from 16 to 35, was the second highest of those 628 guys behind only Jake McGee, who escaped Coors Field and who we've talked about before. How did he do that? Well, he started throwing his cutter as his main pitch for the first time, about 45%. These stats I'm about to tell you are wild and they are real. He got 82 swings on his cutter, and 51 misses. So that is a whiff rate of 62%. Um, Nobody else in baseball had a whiff rate above 50% on their cutter. I also saw this tweet from Brian Smith, who runs the Cubs Prospects uh, site. This is absolutely wild. He ranked the nastiest pitches in baseball as ranked by whiff percentage, which I just told you for Tapera. He got 82 swings and 51 misses. And the way he did it, so fourth place, the fourth best whiff percentage pitch was Devin Williams and his change-up airbender screwball thing that pushed him to rookie of the year. Third place, Shane Bieber's slider. He won the Cy Young Award. Second place, Blake Snell's curve. He's previously won a Cy Young Award. First place, Ryan Tapera's cutter. I don't know why they not tendered him. I don't know what the Cubs are doing. I don't think he's long-term a star, but I know I'm going to be really interested to see what team he ends up with and if he can get himself a legitimate MVP vote this time. I actually have a good Brian Smith story that I'm going to share quickly. All right. <laughs> Brian Smith, when I worked at Baseball America, Brian Smith was was our intern one summer. And uh, Baseball America was based, or I guess is based in Durham, North Carolina. I think their office might have moved, but it's still in that same area. In Durham, North Carolina. And there's a lot of minor league baseball in the area. This was the summer of 2006. And uh, Andrew McCutcheon was playing in the South Atlantic League. So we, in Hickory, which is like a two-hour drive, because um, we were, you know, young and, you know, the kind of thing when you're in your 20s, you like, you know, we'll drive two hours to and from in a night because you, you just want to go see some minor league baseball. So we drove to Hickory to see John Neese, who was a good, a big pitching prospect for the Mets at the time, pitch against Andrew McCutcheon in Hickory. And Brian, being, um, you know, a naive college kid, didn't notice that the uh, gas meter on his car, the, the light that tells you when you're running long gas had broken. And we ran out of gas. It was the only time in my life I ever run out of gas. <laughs> and fortunately, we were, fortunately, we were only like 
literally like half a mile from the ballpark and we ended up like it ended up not being a big deal it was like the the most fortuitous uh running out of gas story ever because like we we're not stranded at all we were just like oh turns out we were just like half a mile from the park went and bought like you know but there was a gas can, a gas station went and bought a gas can you know and like a half a gallon of gas and that was it and here but, i thought um, here i thought i had gone off the rails by talking about sandwich shops in college point queens <laughs> Well, who knew? I was just going looking at the looking at our our our, our podcast doc here, and saw Brian's names pop up. I was like, "Well, I got to tell the story now." Um, anyway, my random free agent is not nearly as compelling, I got to say. But um, I, you know, all of us have have types. One of my types is left-handed hitting catchers. I just think that they are um, in the current game where catching is so hard to come by, and even the you know. The best catchers are huge risks. You know, we, uh, w- while we were recording this, there was a report on Twitter that James McCann is getting four-year four-year contract offers, which seems crazy to me. Um, when you think of guys like Buster Posey and Joe Mauer, who were two of the best catchers of their generation and were basically unplayable as catchers <laughs> after the age of thirty, um, can I, can I cut you, you off for like one second here? He got. What? We're talking about non-tenders. He got non-tendered by the Tigers, who were generally terrible two years ago. <laughs> two years ago. <laughs> So the idea that J- James McCann would get a four-year deal is just wild to me. Um, and then uh, we are uh, – so I think I always think of catching tandems. And when you think of catching tandems, having a left-handed hit- hitting catcher is a really great roster piece. So Jason Castro is a free agent again, and he had a very good year in 2019. He was pretty bad on the surface in, in 2020, and I know it's only 60-game season anyway, but – the secondary numbers are still pretty good. Um, his hard hit rate actually went up from 47% to 55%. Um, his expected weight on base was still 328, which is still like comfortably average. Um, his walk rate and his sweet spot percentage, sweet spot percentage being like the percentage of time that you kind of get that op- optimal launch angle for um, for for hits, um, were both up. And he was in the 70th percentile in catchy fr- catcher framing, um, according to baseball, ball, baseball savant. He turns 34 in June. This is not like someone you want to build your team around, but I think he's a really nice roster piece if you're trying to build a catching tandem and make sort of for like a natural kind of maybe not a platoon because you don't necessarily want him being the guy who's getting 70% of at bats. But if you definitely have like someone you feel better about as your catcher to take, you know, 65% of the catching duties, having him to take 30, 35% of them, I think is a as a really wise. That is um it's a compelling case. Usually I like to kind of push back on your guy and give you a hard time, but no, that's I'll, I'll buy it. Let's finish off with our purpose pitch where Matt and I each pick a rant. Um, I guess it should be pointed out that we do these completely independently of each other. And it seems that these two are maybe somewhat similar at this time. I'm going to start. So the Royals signed Mike Miner for two years and $18 million. That seems like a pretty good deal for both sides, I think. Um, Miner had been with the Royals in 2017, rebuilding his career after arm injuries. He was a very good reliever for them. Went to Texas as a starter. He was very good for two years. This past year, not so much. Actually got traded to Oakland. He said, you know, the short season, he could never get his velocity on track. Like, okay, fine. So here is a quote from Bob Nightingale, who uh, was on the Zoom call with Mike Miners. And he says, "Uh, Mike Miner, let it be known on a Zoom call that he wants to be a staff leader. Okay, no problem with that. And a workhorse. He wants to come out of games based only on his performance and fatigue, not on pitch counts or facing the lineup for a third time. Well, that's fine in theory, but I don't think that's how baseball works anymore. Tanner Roark said the same thing too. Uh, The only guys who get to do that are like really elite aces. So of course, 
I see that. And what am I going to do? I'm going to go look up the numbers. So I looked at Mike Miner's stats for the last three seasons because, uh, again, he was hurt. He missed all 15 and 16. He was a reliever in 17. So the last three years, he's been a starter. And the first time through, he's been very good. 25.5% strikeout rate, and a weighted on base of 282. You already know where this is going. The second time through, a little less good. 23% strikeout rate and the 313 weighted on base. The third time through, the strikeout rate drops to 17% and weighted on base is 323, which is still fine. I think if we've learned anything, and I think Matt's going to get into this in a second because he's going to talk about Blake Snell, it's not necessarily about like as soon as you hit 100 pitches, you turn into a pumpkin, right? But it's also, you just, these guys don't get to go deep anymore. Like, and Mike Miner, you know, for all the, the good he's had in his career, I don't look at him as a, a workhorse. <laughs> he's never really been that guy. And I don't know. I just, it's fine that that's how he wants to approach it. And maybe Mike Matheny will let him do it. But I don't think that's how non elite starting pitchers are really allowed to function anymore. And yes, this is a perfect segue to what I was going to say because I perfectly, I completely um, agree. You know, there was a, a report last week from uh, our own uh, Mark Feinstein saying that the Rays are listening on uh, Blake Snell, which, you know, I could see, you know, Blake Snell signed that contract extension a couple of years ago. Of course, um, it was with the Rays, and it was you know it was, it was during before he come close to free agency, so it was kind of it was backloaded. So the first year of the contract, he only made a million dollars in 2019. Then seven next year, it's going to be 10.5, then 12.5, then 16 million. And so this idea of like maybe now is a time for the Rays to trade him. Of course, Snell in the postseason kind of became the poster boy for this third time to the lineup phenomenon because the Rays um, famously kept taking him out. Um, before he could face the lineup a third time, including in was it, it was the final game of the World Series? Yes, well, uh, game six. I yeah, yeah I can't, um, and you know he was he was quote unquote dealing, and it was a big controversy. And so now there's this talk of like, oh, Blake Snell, you know, maybe you can trade for an ace. He might be the best. Guy. You know, if you're not signing Trevor Bauer, he's the only other ace available. And I really, I think Blake Snell is very good, but I don't think we should be calling him an ace. I know he won the Cy Young Award in 2018, and I know at times, including in this postseason, he looks dominant. But even in that Cy Young season, he averaged fewer than six innings per start. And of the 58 pitchers with 60-plus starts of the la- over the last three seasons, he ranks 54th with 5.19 inning p- innings pitched per, spot- per start. I know this has a lot to do with how the Rays use him. The Rays do not like to let their pitchers face the lineup a third time through the order. That said, he has not proven that he can be an ace, that he can be a workhorse. And right now, if you're talking about an ace, if you're talking about paying a premium either in dollars or in prospects, I think you want one of those pitchers who has shown that they can go six to seven six to seven innings consistently. And that's you know Bieber, Degrom, Cole, Scherzer, um, even you know Bauer has that track record of going of going deep into games regularly. Zach Wheeler has that reputation. He got a big deal last year. Even Clayton Kershaw over the last three years has averaged more than 6.2 innings per start. Zach Greinke as well, Aaron Nola. I just don't think that you can put Blake Snell in that class of ace, even if he might be capable of of it because of the team he pitches for and the fact that he's had some arm injuries. He's never shown he could do it. So I don't think you can can trade for him thinking you're going to get a guy that is going to be the you know regular going going into the you know going into the seventh inning when he's never shown the ability to do it some of which not is not is not even his own doing. Matt hates Blake Snell. Good to know that's uh, that's on the record now. Um, I don't totally agree with you. I think he's a little better than that, but I I agree that his career has been very inconsistent. Like he had that one wild year, and 
Yeah. I, I, one thing I want to mention about that year, which is, it's just crazy, just in the, in the nature of, of of baseball nowadays. He had 31 starts that year when he won the Cy Young in um, 2018. He got 21 wins and five losses. He had 26 decisions in 31 starts when he was averaging like 5.8 innings per start that year, which is just like that's almost hard to do. That like defies probability. Yes, as as I remember that year, I, I advocated for. Justin Verlander to win, I think. And it doesn't take away or add anything to his his year. But I think now that people are like, well, he won a Cy Young. It's like, okay, well, Rick Porcello won a Cy Young too. <laughs> like, let's not go too nuts on the awards. All right, that was our show for today. Thanks for listening. That was a fun one. We'll be back next week with another show. Um, next week should have been the winter meetings. And now they're going to be the virtual winter meetings. I, I did check in with a friend who worked for a team just to ask like, hey, is this, is this going to be like a, a higher than usual week? Are you going to be talking to agents more than normal? And he basically said, well, no, it's going to be like every other week. So um, I guess that's going to be a little different. But I do think with the non-tender window over, we will finally start seeing some free agents get signed. The reliever market is already moving, starting pitchers. Now let's get some position players. This is the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Thanks for listening.